0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to the Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, 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 welcome to the Roy Green Show Podcast.
0: Tense times between the Federal Minister of Immigration, Citizenship and Refugees Ahmed Hussen, and the Conservative Party's critic or shadow minister Michelle Rempel. I spoke with Michelle Rempel about that. This week Austria joined the United States, Australia, Hungary, and Poland in refusing to sign on to the UN Compact for Migration. These nations fear the UN Compact, voluntary, to be signed on next month by 189 countries will compromise their national government's right to determine border policies. Maxime Bernier, the leader of the new People's Party of Canada, joined me. An Angus Reid poll suggests Canadians, after the announcement of the Trudeau government of a carbon tax rebate, or tax credit, Canadians may be viewing the carbon tax more favourably. Does that mean that Canadians are willing to sell out for a few hundred bucks? I spoke with Aaron Woodrick, the National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. The Monk debate last night in Toronto. Be it resolved, the future of Western politics is populist, not liberal. The opponents were Steve Bannon, the former Donald Trump strategist, and David Frum, former speechwriter for George Bush. How did it go? Steve Paikin, the host of The Agenda on TVO, spoke to me about that. On Tuesday, the U.S. midterm elections will take place. Will the so-called blue wave materialize for Democrats? Or could there be another 2016 surprise waiting? Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, the U.S. polling firm, had thoughts on that. Michelle Rempel joins us now. Member of Parliament, Conservative Member of Parliament for Nose Hill in Calgary. Um, Michelle, thank you for the time. And just let's go back to the fundamentals here. What is the the disagreements that you have with the immigration minister? Uh, how much of it is professional and how much of it has rolled over into becoming personal?
2: It is 100% professional, and that is because this minister has refused to take any accountability for a complete lack of disregard for the abuse of Canada's immigration system. Uh, you know, I've been on your show many times uh, talking about concrete ways to end the practice of people illegally entering our country uh, from the United States and then claiming that they are persecuted. I've, I, you know, he has provincial counterparts that are saying, how is the federal government going to pay for the social welfare costs? And instead of responding to that with policy, And I have put out very concrete policy measures that could be undertaken to correct this situation. Instead of responding with policy, he comes out with name-calling. And so, you know, to me, I, I don't need to like somebody to work with them. But as a minister of the Crown, he has a responsibility to stop calling people names and casting aspersions on Canadians that have legitimate questions and start fixing the problem. And we've seen nothing from that. We've just seen just just blatant disregard. And I think that that has really decreased Canadians' appetite for immigration writ large. And that's shameful.
0: Now, but I guess what I was getting at is, uh, has has the relationship, m- maybe because of what the minister has said to you or tweeted about you, and Lisa McLeod, the uh, Ontario counterpart of yours and his, uh, has, has that crossed over from the lines of, professional behavior into personal insult
2: well i think for a minister of the crown to be asked a very pointed question like how are you going to pay for this how do you respond to this bill that you've been charged to, to say you know to suggest that somebody is doing x y or z and i hate repeating those words because it just confirms their like it just reinforces their narrative i say that that's unprofessional and that's uh, you know that is that is insulting um there, there are so many things that he should be focusing on now. In your intro, you talked about the Global Compact for Migration. Yeah, uh, you know that's something I frankly oppose, given the fact that Trudeau has no credibility to manage Canada's immigration system. I introduced a motion about that in the House this week. Um, you know, he in, instead of looking at the issues that matter to Canadians, because they have legitimate concerns. He and it's not just me. He calls names. It's not just Lisa McLeod. He calls names. He insinuates that anybody who has legitimate questions about immigration in Canada is, insert insult here. And they've gone as far, Roy, this week as to announce a taxpayer-funded uh, propaganda program to convince Canadians that immigration is okay, when in fact all that Canadians want to see is to be assured that the system is being run in a fair way orderly and lawful manner and they failed to do that
0: you know what, what i observe when during question period when either the prime minister or any of the ministers is asked a question they get up and maybe this is just a de facto way of doing things these days but there's no answer to the question there's a there's a vacuous counter-attack against the, the, maybe the person or the party that person represents that that has nothing to do with the question that was asked and that is a, increasingly frustrating for, for Canadians, we want, we want to know what the issues are. We want to know what the debates are. We want to know what the, what the disagreements are in Parliament because we have an important decision to make in less than a year.
2: Right. And, I mean, the response I hear in the House on virtually any question is it's one of two things. And it's almost like a drinking game. It's like it's Stephen Harper's fault three years into a mandate or you're a fearmonger. So, for example, this week when the Prime Minister was w- rightly questioned by both political parties, Uh, across the aisle. Why is Statistics Canada gathering the personal banking transaction data of Canadians, 500,000 Canadians, and will you stop that? You know, his two responses were, it's Stephen Harper's fault, and you're a fearmonger. And Canadians don't want to hear that. They want the the Prime Minister to take responsibility. Uh, You know, he might put forward a policy position that people don't like. But just responding with that type of rhetoric is unparliamentary. And I think that's where, you know, he's losing support from a lot of Canadians, regardless of how they vote.
0: What I found also disturbing, Michelle, is I looked at your Twitter account and I was looking at the tweets that you've uh, that you tweeted over the last couple of days. And there was one in there that had to do with the fact that you've been threatened on Twitter, personally threatened. And yes. there, there was, there's a reference to Mr. Husson challenging the manner in which you manage your own Twitter account as though that's any business of his.
2: And, of course, this was in response to – I asked him a very simple question on Friday. I said, will you apologize to Lisa McLeod for the exchange and, and, frankly, to all Ontario taxpayers? Because she was asking a very pointed question about how he was going to deal with this as her federal counterpart. And his response related to my, you know, t- t- to how I manage a social media account. Uh, I mean, th- that there is a reality. I-, I have had to go to court because I've had rape and death threats uh, placed against me. And, I, you know, that resulted in a conviction. And um, the, this, it's this deflection, right? But this is the Liberals' tactics, is that they want you and I, Roy, on this show to be talking about this. And me having to defend something other than being on the offense and holding them to account for their poor policy decisions. They hope that if we, you know, engage in debate on this narrative, that Canadians will forget what's happening at Roxham Road. They'll forget what's happening at the United Nations. They'll forget what's happening. I mean, they released their immigration levels this week, which were completely, the whole document they released was completely absurd. They don't want us to talk about that. They want to talk us to ha- debate this other stuff. And I just I'm not gonna give him that that I know that game. I'm not playing that game. And I think that's what frustrates him so much is that we hold firm and Canadians are holding firm.
0: Well it's been one of my major concerns that during election campaigns, quite often mainstream media will take a news release from a political party, a political party they may favor or have some interest in, it seems to me, they'll take a news release from a political party and turn it into a a news story. It's not. It's a piece of party propaganda that suddenly becomes a news issue when it doesn't have the right to be, and it becomes a debating point uh, in a federal election where it really has no place.
2: You know, something that happened this week that was very interesting was uh, Hussein was in the House of Commons for about an hour. Uh, and I received a call from uh, a reporter asking to comment on an immigration levels report. So this is a, a significant piece of government policy that they had received earlier in the day that I hadn't received, and they were ready to go to the wire with the story. The document was forty three pages long. Um, and and it's it's a long-standing parliamentary tradition set out in the orders that Parliament should get information before the media does. Uh, You know, the speaker, I raised the point of privilege in the House. The speaker, uh, this is technical terms for saying uh, my rights were violated, my constituents' rights were violated. Uh, And, you know, we have a a liberal speaker in the chair, so, you know, he typically rules with the government. Um, This is the sort of, what you just raised, what I just raised, this is what we need to be talking about, and especially people who don't Mm -hmm. share the liberal's dogma. And it's important for us in terms of the health of our democracy.
0: Yep, stay, stay on message. Michelle, let me just ask for your thoughts because you touched on it a moment ago, and and when we last spoke, you touched on it as well. What is what is your feeling about the uh, globalism versus nationalism debate that is that is ongoing, and is taking up a lot of oxygen? What's your sense of what's 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 developing here?
2: I do think that there has been a class of people globally that have attempted to set uh, an agenda of policy that is largely ignorant of the needs and perceptions of a large group of people, both in Canada and the U.S. and other parts of the world. But, I mean, this is particularly acute in the U.S. And I think the the response from that group of people is rather than trying to adapt a political ideology to come up with policy that acknowledges that there are many people uh, in both of our countries that... W- aren't seeing wage growth that are have difficulty finding a job and especially like a, a, a younger generation of people that are working in in tenuous jobs or you know quote-unquote gig jobs right like uh, you know uber driving or whatnot that that they can't just ignore these people and say that they're not progressive enough or that they're they just don't get the policy that they're somehow not intellectual enough and that's really like the flavor of justin trudeau right um So I think that's really where you have to focus that debate. Um, I think that I I sort of disagree with the media framing it out as like populism versus nationalism versus liberalism. We need to get back to understanding that there are a lot of people in both Canada and the U.S. that are having trouble making ends meet, that don't see the opportunity that their parents have, Mm -hmm. and that they see the government becoming increasingly disconnected with, forward programs or policies that are designed to make their lives better. Okay. And I think that's valid.
0: We have two minutes. Uh, the issue of the increased immigration numbers announced by the Trudeau government yesterday, they say they're going to focus on economic immigrants. You say what?
2: Anybody who is giving you a number, be it 350,000, 250,000, is treating setting immigration levels like an auction. Uh, that's wrong. That's the Justin Trudeau approach. What you, what we need to do is set immigration levels in accordance with principles on who we select to come to Canada, under what circumstances, and what process. What do I mean by that? We should be matching immigration needs directly with the, with the Canadian economy. Uh, and when we are looking at humanitarian immigration, it can't be from people that are entering the United States illegally uh that number should be zero so that's where we i was trying to focus the debate this week uh it's very politically easy and and ignorant for somebody to just come out with a number like kind of pulling it out of their their rear end it should be backed up with principles and uh we haven't seen a political party outside the conservative party do that okay. in canada now,
0: they are saying that the focus is going to be on on uh, skilled immigrants people who have uh, the skills to do the jobs that are required in canada but again the charter doesn't allow the government to mandate that somebody goes where the job exists. Now, the the petition that you have against Statscan continuing to collect confidential information about Canadians, where can we find the petition? How's it going?
3: Sure.
2: So, I mean the petition is all over any of my social media feeds, it's on my website. Right. Uh, in just over 48 hours, I think this is a record pace. We have almost 10,000 signatures from Canadians uh, of, of all political stripe opposing the government harvesting their personal ATM transactions, data, debit transactions. Uh, this is something, regardless of how you vote, the government should have no role in collecting this information. Okay. It is way Scope Creek. Please sign it. We've got to oppose this.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate the time, always.
2: Have a
1: great day. Michelle Rempel. We are here to engage in the most important, the most dangerous challenge that liberal democratic institutions have faced since the end of
4: communism. That is all the work of the great elites of the permanent political class that look at the populist movement as a bunch of racist, nativist, xenophobes. Well, it's not. They're the backbone of our country, the most decent people on earth. Here in Canada, you're built upon the same building blocks of the little guy, the little person. What do you call it? For the common good?
0: Steve Bannon, David Frum. Last night at the Monk debate, looking at their website, uh, part of the explanation for the debate was: throughout the Western world, politics is undergoing a sea change. Long-held notions of the role of government, trade, and economic policy, foreign policy, and immigration are being challenged by populist thinkers and movements. Does this surge, surging populist agenda in Western nations, signal a permanent shift in our politics? Very important question. So I spoke with Steve Pakin earlier on. He's the host of The Agenda on TVO. He is also the author of Bill Davis, Nation Builder, and Not So Bland After All, and Pakin and the Premiers, two books by Steve Pakin. I spoke with him about the debate. I spoke with him as well about the issue of populism versus nationalism. Steve's been at this for over 30 years, and he's interviewed some of the major players Uh, nationally and internationally in the world of politics. Here's how the conversation went about the monk debate. Have a listen. Steve, thanks for the time. Uh, What was the purpose of the debate last night, really the purpose of the debate between Bannon and and Fromm?
4: Well, I'm guessing there were probably two purposes. Between the two of them, it was the question of whether or not the future belongs to populism or whether it belongs to liberal democracy as we have known it in the post-war period. Um, But I guess the other purpose of the evening was from the presenters of the Monk debate itself, and that is whether or not somebody as controversial as Steve Bannon ought to be allowed to come to a public place uh, in the capital city of the province of Ontario and have a a public debate with another well-known public figure, uh, and whether that ought to be allowed to happen. Uh, Obviously, there were lots of protesters uh, outside Roy Thompson Hall last night who thought it ought not to happen, and uh, it did cause some... Uh, confusion and difficulties in getting the debate started on time, but obviously it eventually did, and it happened.
0: Now, what's your sense of that? Well, you know, a fundamental cornerstone of our democratic existence is freedom of expression. And we learn from freedom of expression and debate from opposing points of view. What's your sense of the attempts to uh, to stop Bannon from speaking in uh, in Toronto?
4: Well, there's certainly that view that it is ironic that that in a country where freedom of speech is... Uh, i mean it is a part of the charter of rights and freedoms freedom of expression is right in there uh it is an important canadian value uh the the right to protest the freedom of assembly the right to express one's opposition to something was certainly a freedom that was being expressed last night because there were uh, i I think by some counts 1500 as many as 1500 protesters in the street who were exercising their free and democratic rights to protest um But for some reason, uh, those people thought that while they ought to have the right to express themselves freely, uh, the people who organized the Monk debate ought not to have that same right. Uh, I understand their point of view. Their point of view was that Bannon's views are so hideous and so outside the mainstream and so extreme, and some of them might even argue illegal, that he ought not to be afforded that platform in order to express them. And obviously, the Monk debate people disagreed with that and thought that the best way to uh, you know, I guess the best way to deal with his views is to, what's the old expression? Sunlight is the best disinfectant, so have it out on the debate stage, and that's what they did.
0: So what did you come away with, Steve, as you listened, as you watched, as you heard the points and the counterpoints? What was the, uh, what was the overall impression that you came away
4: with? Well, the overall impression was that it was a really great debate. It was a very uh, high-level, smart, uh, intelligent conversation. Uh, what was interesting to me about it was uh, just they screwed up a little bit, Actually, Roy, they screwed up in, in, you know, everybody votes ahead of time uh, on how they feel on the resolution. You know, yes or no, I agree or disagree that that, uh, populism rather than liberal democracy will be the future. And the vote that they put up after it was over, they screwed the numbers up. And it looked like Bannon had moved the House by a factor of about 30 percent. And just based on the reaction in the hall, you know, there was a certain amount of hissing and booing when he said certain things. My sense of it was that just wasn't possible. And sure enough, they put the wrong numbers up, and we discovered after the fact that, in fact, not a single mind had been changed. The numbers ahead of time were 73% in favor of David Frum's position that liberal democracy is the future, not populism. And after the thing was over, it was either 72 or 73%, I forget. It was the exact same number after the debate was over. So I'm not sure any minds were changed, but it was a really smart, high-level, um, intelligent Uh, interchange of ideas, and my suspicion is that everybody walked away from it feeling uh, like it was an evening well spent.
0: Steve, some commentary today is that the average folks, those who consider nationalism to be patriotism and love of country, weren't present at the debate last night and that their viewpoint about nationalism versus globalism was never going to be fairly presented. Is that a fair argument?
4: Well, I don't think so, because after all, that argument was advanced by Steve Bannon. He was on the debate stage. He did manage to get, whatever it was, 28% of the votes uh, at the beginning of the night. So certainly more than a quarter of the hall, or you might want to say you know, almost three in every 10 people in Roy Thompson Hall, and I guess there were almost 3,000 people there, uh, agreed with him. So you know, it's fair to say that it was a home game for David Frum. Uh, no question about that. He's from Toronto. Uh, certainly more people in the hall agreed with his view than Bannon's view. But the notion that Bannon's view wasn't represented, um, I think it's just empirically provably false. It was represented.
0: What's this whole argument or the debate about to you personally? I'd like your thoughts. What the issue of globalism versus nationalism? You know, we have nationalist leaders being elected in uh, in greater numbers. We just last week in Brazil uh, saw that, and Angela Merkel is leaving her position in Germany. That may or may not have anything to do with the globalism versus nationalism argument. But what's this? What's this argument? What's the debate about to you?
4: Well, I think actually From addressed this really well last night, which is, uh, to be sure, one of the reasons that populism is in ascension these days, and we'll see for how much and for how long, obviously there are midterm elections in the United States, which may um, you know, change that one way or another, but uh, I, Frum did ad- address the issue of whether or not, uh, if you don't like the way things are going, if liberal democracies have um, disappointed you, if they have made mistakes that have made you feel as if you don't belong, then uh, the the appropriate response in his view is not to destroy the whole system, uh, tear it down, burn it down, as Steve Bannon once said, uh, but rather to change it, to improve it, um, to rebuild it. Uh, That's that's certainly the point that he was trying to make last night. I think he made it pretty well. And uh, obviously honorable people can disagree. Bannon used his line a couple of times last night that his mission in life is basically the, the uh, you know, destruction of the administrative state. He thinks the government is too much in people's lives, and he thinks, as he called them himself, basically, you know, lower middle class, lower class, mostly white, mostly red state Americans uh, have been the forgotten people in the last many years, and uh, he's there to represent them. The deplorables. That's what, he, that's, as you know, what Hillary Clinton called them, and uh, and I, I think uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, used the expression during the campaign as an uh, admonishment, and Steve Bannon wears it as a kind of badge of honor. Uh, you know, the people who uh, pay their taxes, raise their families, uh, go to work, and uh, play by the rules. That's that's his version of it. And, you know, he certainly admonished Trump at one point last night that um, the last person to use the expression, the deplorables, uh, didn't win. And his view is if you don't adequately represent these people, you won't win either.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Steve, I'll ask you one more question. Again, you, the political observer, you know the the political game. You know the players in this country extremely well. What do you expect in the next year leading to the federal election? What are you looking for? We just had an Ipsos poll for uh, Global News uh, two weeks ago, which has the conservatives and the liberals literally neck and neck, one point apart.
4: Well, I wouldn't pay you anything for a poll that came out 52 weeks before the next election. Uh, I think it was a former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan who said a week is a lifetime in politics. In which case, we have 50 lifetimes before the next federal election. Uh, the polls are going to go up. The polls are going to go down. Different things are going to happen, and I would never attempt to predict how it's all going to unfold. Uh, the government has some challenges on some issues. Uh, it's doing well on some other issues. The opposition is um, uh, has some challenges. Andrew shear has got what is widely perceived to be the worst job in Canadian politics right? Leader of the opposition is a very tough job. He's also got some difficulties with uh, Maxine Bernier's uh, new party, which may chip away at some of his support as well. So anybody who tells you 50 weeks ahead of time how they know the next election is going to turn out, I'd walk away. <laughs> don't even listen.
0: Yeah, I don't think they were doing that so much as looking at the the, the landscape today. What I'm interested in is, is this going to be a, a reasonably civil campaign for the next year, or are we just going to have people at each other's metaphorical, hopefully just metaphorical thro- throats?
4: Well, I can't recall the last election campaign that was civil. And I think I've only watched about 30 of them. So, yeah, of course it's going to get down and dirty because there's a lot at stake. There are competing visions of where the country ought to go. And, you know, a good, vigorous, tough uh, interchange of ideas. I think Canadians don't mind that at all. Uh, I don't know that they like when people really get in the gutter and start practicing the politics of personal destruction. But a good, vigorous clash of ideas, Uh, you know, we're a democracy. We're up for that, I think.
0: I am up for that, and that's what last night was all about, from what you tell me. Steve, thank you so much. Always good speaking with you.
4: My pleasure, Roy. Good to talk to you again.
0: Good guy, smart guy. Steve Bacon, host of uh, The Agenda on TVO in uh, Ontario. He's moderated, as you know, leaders, federal leaders' debates, and uh, was there last night for the monk debate between Steve Bannon and David Frum. So the needle didn't shift among the audience. The Conservatives, new story here, the Conservatives have announced the uh, Federal Party that uh, they have chosen a former local mayor and agricultural entrepreneur, I'm reading from Global News, to face Quebec MP Maxime Bernier in the 2019 election. The uh, leader of the People's Party of Canada and the MP for Bose in Quebec joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corners Radio Network. Mr. Bernier, thank you for the time. And uh, what's your uh, what's your response to the Conservative Party announcing they have a former mayor and a highly profiled individual in your community running against you?
3: <laughs> thank you for the invitation. First of all, I'm not surprised. Uh, that person is a dairy producer. And as you know, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are working with the dairy cartel and the cartel of supply management in Canada to be sure that Canadian consumers will pay twice the price for dairy, poultry and eggs. And as you know, I'm the only member of parliament against that cartel. And I'm very, uh, very proud of that, of defending Canadian consumers. So uh, that person that is the conservative candidate for both is a dairy producer. And then uh, uh, they want to be sure to uh, keep their privilege. But that will be a very interesting uh, electoral campaign in both in 2019, because uh, he will speak for them, the dairy cartel, to keep their privilege. And I will speak for consumers and both. And I want them to pay uh, half the price for these products. So that will be very interesting. I'll, uh, I'll uh, I'm looking for it for that uh, competition. But at the same time, I think Andrew shea doing an event in both today. Uh, they they are a bit. Uh, uh not so sure what would be the future of the People's Party of Canada. And I know what will be the future of the People's Party of Canada. It's going very well all across the country. And they tried to beat me in my own riding. Uh, But uh, I'll do everything to win. And uh, I'm pretty optimistic uh, now. So we'll see what will happen in a year from now.
0: You knew there was going to run somebody very highly profiled in your community against you. That was always going to happen.
3: Oh, for sure, yes, uh, and uh, and I wish that they will uh, choose a uh, dairy producer, and that's what they did, uh, and and what he said. Uh uh, that candidate today, he said, "You know, I'm very proud of the supply management cartel, and uh, it's a good, it's good for Canada, so uh, i will uh, I will fight for that. And that's great. Uh, that would be the debate. And I will uh, demonstrate to the Beauceron and people in Quebec uh, that it is not good for this country, and it is uh, uh, the opposite of Robin Wood. We are taxing the poor to give that to rich uh, producers under the supply management uh, cartel and as you know i'm not speaking for all agriculture entrepreneur the real entrepreneur uh, are 90% of the of the agriculture uh, farmer in canada that are not under supply management as you know so it's only 10% of the farmers that are under supply management and they they have that they are are adding that uh, privilege so how well
0: is the initiative with the people's party going you know there are people who are saying that Uh, You're going to be lucky if you hold on to the Bose riding. There are people who don't give you much of a chance of fielding enough candidates to really make a difference in Canada. What's your reality on the ground? How's it going?
3: First of all, it's going very, very well, and I'm very happy. You know, people were saying in the beginning that Bernie won't be able to raise money. And we were able to raise up to now $400,000 without being able to give a tax receipt to our donors because we're not uh, officially recognized by Election Canada. That may come in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, and uh, we, we had a goal to have a lot of funding members, and I was very happy. Uh, we are having right now 31,000 funding members after only seven weeks. Can you imagine that, like, for example, the Green Party that exists uh, for the last 25 years, they are having only 20,000 members, and us, after seven weeks, 31,000 funding members that's great and I'm very, very happy with that. Now our next goal it is not to look for having candidates. Our next goal is to build the organization with our membership all across the country and having a writing association everywhere. That's what we are doing and the goal is to have a writing association everywhere in Canada in 338 ridings before the end of December and up to now we have more than 100 and 105, 105 ridings uh, ready. So it's going pretty well we'll achieve that goal and after that in january yes we will look for candidates uh, and uh, i'm sure we'll have candidates in every riding uh, before the end of may will be ready and uh, I'm, I'm very happy. It's going very well. Actually, I'll be out west uh, next week. I'll be in uh, uh, Calgary with the Rebel Media. They're doing an event over there. I'm the keynote speaker uh, Saturday, uh, November the 10th. Uh, before that, I'll be in uh, Vancouver. We'll do an event also. And uh, that's, that's going well. I, I'm in a campaign mode uh, right now. You know, we have a platform. We're the only party who's having a platform, so I can. Uh, Think about it, and the more people know our platform, the better it is for us.
0: Okay, I want to ask you about the UN Compact on Migration, which Canada is going to sign on to. A couple of days ago, we found out that Austria is not. They were thinking about it. They've now decided not to go ahead. Hungary isn't. I'm not sure of what Poland's status is. Australia is out, and the United States are out. I'm going to ask you about that in a moment but can you tell me please just how just where does the issue of immigration rank for you as uh, as a as a party leader in in this country where where on the scale of importance does immigration land
3: but for us uh, the election will be about the economy we have a strong platform in the economy but also about immigration we're the only party in Canada that uh, ask for less immigration uh, actually I, I said that we must have go back to what uh, the number of immigrants that we had under Stephen Harper about uh, 250,000 a year actually the Trudeau government now uh, they want to aim at 350,000 a year Uh, immigrants and they receive a report, report, uh, the Barton report, uh, asking for 450 uh, immigrants every year. So for us, uh, we need to uh, make a pause. We need to be sure that uh, these immigrants will integrate our society. They will have a job. And I'm the only party, uh, the Conservative, uh, the Liberal, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, they are uh, speaking for more immigrants. So that's a big difference between us and uh, the other party. And I think that would be something important for Canadians. Actually, in Quebec, at the last election at the provincial level, the the, the coalition and avenir Quebec, la like CAC, uh, they are now in government uh, with a huge majority. And they were the only one to ask for less immigrants. Uh, in Quebec, uh, they received uh, five... Uh, 50,000 immigrants every year, and the leader of, of LACAC and now the premier of Quebec said that we must go down a little bit to uh, 400, uh, uh, not 400, sorry, 40,000 40, uh, immigrants a year, 10,000 less. And uh, and that was very popular. I think the population are there, uh, we don't want to uh, be like uh, some uh, countries in Europe where they have a challenge to integrate their uh, their immigrants. And that's why uh, the UN Global Compact for Migration uh, I'm against it. And Canada must not sign that. It's uh, it is a dangerous can I get uh, can
0: treaty. I can I get you to hold on yes. a second and and we'll talk about that yes. in a minute. Okay, yes. we're going to come yes. back with Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party. One of the issues that's not been talked about a great deal, as far as the federal government is concerned, is the United Nations Global Compact on Migration. On 89 countries, are going to sign on in December, Canada being one of them. Austria decided uh, just a couple of days ago that they were announced they were not going to participate. And I'm just looking at a CBC story here. Conservative Chancellor Sebastian Kurz took office last December in a coalition with the Nationalist Anti-Migration Freedom Party. Austria currently holds the European Union's rotating presidency, and Kurtz has made curbing unregulated migration a priority. The Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration, which won't be legally binding, was finalized under UN auspices in July. It's due to be formally approved at a December meeting in Marrakesh, Morocco. Uh, The Austrians cited, among other things, fears about a Possible watering down of the distinction between legal and illegal migration. There are some points that we view critically and where we fear a danger to our national sovereignty. That's also what um, uh, the Australian member of parliament, Brad Batten, who was on the air with us last weekend, told us why Australia decided it wasn't going to sign on and the United States isn't going to sign on either. Maxime Bernier is with me leader of the People's Party, and uh, you'll recall Mr. Bernier created a lot of attention over a series of tweets not so long ago that dealt with multiculturalism in Canada. So, Mr. Bernier, what is your concern about this UN compact on migration? Their argument is there are going to be hundreds of millions of people who are going to be migrating over the next decades, do it in a safe, orderly manner, and have countries take in the people they can. It's not. It's not. It's not arbitrary. It's not forced. Do the best for the migrants. Do the best, best for the resident popu- uh, population. What's wrong with that argument?
3: Yeah. First of all, uh, people must know that uh, this uh, global for, compact for migration, for for us, it is a dangerous international treaty because there is a. Uh, 250 million migrants in the world today. And look at what's happening right now in Canada. We have illegal migration crossing the border in Quebec and the country is not able to deal with that. The Trudeau government, they want always more and more migration. So for for me and for our party, the Global Compact for Migration commits our country to developing uh, all kinds of programs to deal with migration. And, and giving to these immigrants uh, extensive social services. That's in the compact. So, in short, we must spend billions of dollars to deal with new new uh, uh, migrations. That will be a cost for the country. And we need to control our immigration system. Doing that, signing that uh, compact like the Trudeau government wants to do, uh, for me, we will give sovereignty to the UN and we will... Uh, uh, lose control of our borders, so that's why it is important not signing that. And uh, we are the only party in Canada who's asking for that. The official opposition, the Conservative, the Liberal, the NDP—they are all in favor of that global. Well, I, I
0: spoke with uh, I spoke with Michelle Rempel earlier in the program today, and she was definitely not in favor of this UN compact on migration
3: did you ask if that's if that's the position of the party because a week ago they were in favor of that maybe they change and that would be a good news but uh, i don't you know australia did the right thing the us did the right thing uh, if you sign that it's a commitment to have more migration in canada and to follow the un uh, the un objectives and the best way to help these people these people it is not uh, it is not to have them here in Canada or in other countries. They must develop a free market economy. They must have uh, less government. They must have more freedom. Uh, and that's the solution for this country. Uh, and that the solution is not to uh, uh, be sure that all these migrants will uh, will come in uh, in Canada or other countries. Well, you know so what I we I, are against that. Yeah.
0: I, I I agree with you in in the sense that there are countries, you cannot empty out a country. Because a country isn't doing well doesn't mean you can empty out the country and just move everybody in that country somewhere else, either to one other country or to a series of other countries. The best approach is to provide the country that is not doing well, in this instance there are a number of are many of them, but a global effort to provide some backstop, financial, economic, and otherwise, to these countries that are not doing well is the best way to go forward, in my view, because then you create the kind of you, can, you create for, forward momentum for a whole series of nations that don't have it now. What you're doing with this, I, I worry that this 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 uh, compact on migration will just encourage people to give up on their own countries and move somewhere else. Uh,
3: absolutely, and also, if you want to help these these uh, countries, uh, you must open your border, uh, uh, free trade. So when I'm saying open your border for for goods and services. Some of these countries, they cannot export their products because in uh, Western countries, we are imposing huge tariffs against the import of their products. So the, the best way for a country to become richer is also to be able to sell their goods to other countries and mm-hmm. having a real free trade in between uh, countries. But uh, some, some uh, Western countries are imposing huge tariffs, and so they cannot develop their economy. Yeah. That's the first thing to do.
0: The reason people leave... Where they are, is because things aren't going well for them there. That's usually the reason people leave, and the the, the most I think the most productive and the most uh, the simple way to improve things and make uh, make life better is to improve the reality and the countries that are exp- facing difficulties, as you point out. Free, uh, real free trade, real proper trade, will go a long way in in creating that. So, but that, but this is going to be signed, this co- this Compact on Migration is going to be signed, and uh, you have concerns this is going to do negative things to Canada.
3: Yes, and it's in the logic of the Liberals' uh, mass immigration agenda, so that's part of their agenda for that. And I don't think that Canadians uh, want that. You know, 40% of Canadians are saying that uh, we have too much uh, immigration in this country. Uh, and we must have that debate. And it's too yeah. bad that uh, we don't have that debate in the parliament and uh, before that this, uh, yeah. global comeback being signed. All
0: right. Mr. Bernier, thank you very much for the time. Good talking to you.
3: Thank you. Have a nice day. You Bye-bye. too.
0: Maxime Bernier. As the Tudor government continues to push its national carbon tax program... A new poll suggests a majority of Canadians may be behind the Prime Minister's plan. On Thursday, Angus Reid released its latest poll showing 54% of respondents supported the soon-to-be-implemented carbon tax. That, no doubt, has a lot to do with the fact that the Prime Minister is promising rebates or tax credits, however that's going to turn out. The question is, are you being bought with your own money? Aaron Woodrick is the financial director, or federal director, of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us on the Roy Green Show, Aaron, thank you for the time. How do you interpret this?
1: Well, look, Roy, I think the Prime Minister is really rolling the dice here. I think most people understand when you you're faced with a tax hike, uh, you're not going to be better off. And yet the Prime Minister is, is gambling that Canadians are somehow going to say, OK, they're going to raise taxes on me, yet they're going to somehow give everybody back more than they paid in. I think he's facing an uphill battle. People are skeptical, and I don't blame them, because if a government wants to make you better off, all you have to do is cut taxes. You don't have to bring in a new tax.
0: Well, that's the way it should have been. If they were going to introduce a carbon tax, and they have, clearly, and they're going to, and they're insistent it's going to happen, then what you do is you cut the regulations or you cut taxes elsewhere. You just cut, and and then you have uh, uh, neutrality or net neutrality. But but I, I question this whole idea, about a rebate, because how do we know specifically, how can we predict what the increase in day-to-day living is going to be based on our, you know, carbon-related uh, industries and products that we use? How can we project exactly what it's going to be, what it's going to cost us going in? So how do we know that the rebate is going to match or come close to matching what, we've, what the extra money we've spent?
1: Yeah, well, the short answer is we can't. And again, the, the, the PM is engaging in a bit of magic math here. If he collects a certain amount of money and divvies it back up and sends it back out, it's impossible for everyone to be better off, right? There are going to be some losers here, and uh, they just don't want to say who it is. And the other thing I should point out with their plan is there are all sorts of holes in this plan, exemptions for large emitters, for example. Um, so it's not quite clear, uh, you know, what, what they think they're going to accomplish with this. It seems more, frankly, like a symbolic act, if anything. Uh, and it's going to be a symbolic act that's going to cost. Canadians quite a bit of money. Was
0: well, so it the smart move?
1: Well, look, I think the smart move would have been to abandon it altogether. It's clear that the winds have changed on carbon taxes. We've seen, you know, with the election of Doug Ford, with the change of tune in Manitoba, now New Brunswick. um, You know, this is not popular. They are sort of trying to find a plan B here to save their project. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, this this carbon tax is now going to live or die with Justin Trudeau. Um, If he loses power in 2019, there's no way this carbon tax is going to survive.
0: If the Angus Reid poll, though, shows that there's an increase in the numbers of Canadians who support the idea of the carbon tax after the trudeau explanation and the promise of a rebate doesn't that give trudeau a leg up
1: yeah look ray i think if any time you raise tax on people if you promise to give them some money back there's going to be some people that are satisfied with that i would point out that alberta they already have a system where people get checks sent to them um, that has not helped the popularity of the carbon tax in that province. There's still two thirds of the province against it. So uh, I think again they're being a bit naive if they think simply waving a little check at, at people is going to to make all this go away.
0: You know, I just remember what Australia and I don't have the quote the direct quote from the Australian government and the studio with me. I mentioned it last weekend when we spoke with Brad Batten. Australian Member of Parliament, but Australia in 2014 essentially said, we've had the carbon tax for a number of years now, we're going to get rid of it, and we're getting rid of it because getting rid of it is going to help our national economy, it'll help our small businesses, the entrepreneurs, and it'll help Australian families. It's gone. Nevertheless, at the state level, i.e. the provincial level, they've retained it, and uh, Mr. Batten told us that the cost there has been significant. In some cases, they've had to deal with two weeks of blackouts.
1: Yeah look fundamentally there's no getting around it Roy if you're going to reduce emissions it's going to cost money it is going you're you're going to the only way you're going to get people to change their behavior is to really make it hurt at the, like at the at the gas pump for example it's one thing It's to, hurting I'm, already Well, yeah. And, you know, look, no one wants to pay more for gas. But if you add 10, 15, 20 cents, that will tick a lot of people off. But it's not going to fundamentally change the way people live their lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you do double or triple the price of gas, you can bet that politically that's going to be a really tough sell because uh, who wants to vote, uh, you know, to change the cost of their commute to work to double or triple what it is today? Not me. (laughs) <laughs> Certainly not a lot of folks that have to drive <laughs> to work. And yeah. again, I, I, you know, I, I just think, frankly, there's a lot of a naivety here, Roy. Uh, the, the reality is, there's not Canada cannot do much for better or for worse on this issue. And whatever we do is largely symbolic. So, you know, hoping that Canadians are going to be willing to swallow massive costs imposed upon them just for the moral right to say we're doing something, I just don't think is is a good sell.
0: Now, and ultimately, a few hundred bucks of your own money coming back to you is not going to win you the, uh, not even going to win you the point, I don't think, and as far as the election is concerned. Aaron, thank you. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Aaron Woodrick, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers' Federation. As uh, the midterms loom, 72 hours from now, Americans will be engaged in voting and making a determination as to who will be in charge of Congress. It looks as though, polling seems to indicate, that the House uh, is going to be controlled by the Democrats and the Senate remain under the control of the Republicans. And, of course, the White House will remain under control of the Republicans of Donald Trump. That's what conventional thinking suggests. But then we remember conventional thinking in uh, November of 2016 on Election Day. Even when the polls closed and the talking heads on TV started to pontificate, there was a lot of giggling going on. There was a giggle fest about how badly... Hillary Clinton was going to defeat Donald Trump, and the rest we know. We spoke heading toward that election. We spoke a great deal in 2016 with Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, Rasmussen National Polling in the U.S., and former editor of the Washington Times newspaper. And uh, Fran gave us a pretty good idea of what may happen, and it did. And Fran Coombs is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Fran, thank you so much for the time. And conventional thinking is, or at least the conventional argument, appears to be uh, Democrats win the House, Republicans probably hang on to the Senate. And and, uh, how realistic is that expectation?
5: Well, (laughs) Roy, you know, I don't think any pollster in this country will tell you that they're sure what's going to happen. Uh, Again, when you're sampling... House districts, which are very small, uh, you're talking about smaller samples, you're talking about smaller groups of people and everything. Um, so, I, you know, all of this polling, I mean, it may well turn out, as you said, uh, uh, the majority are saying that the Democrats take over the House, the Republicans keep the Senate, uh, but a survey we did this week, we did it before the Trump election, too, because we were in the same kind of position th- that two years ago. Uh, we showed the Hillary and Trump very close, and of course, as we know, Trump won. Uh, we show on our generic ballot, uh, which is asking people whether they'd vote for a Republican or a Democrat if the vote was today. Uh, we find that very close. Uh, so these numbers that show big blowout wins by the Democrats, a blue wave, uh, we don't see that in our numbers. Uh, and another thing that I did, I know you're familiar with this, is that we asked folks, we asked Republicans and Democrats and unaffiliated voters, are you more likely this year? To tell people how you're going to vote compared to past years, and we found the same thing this year that we found in 2016, which is Republicans were a lot more reluctant to speak out about how they were going to vote, and a lot of people construed after the 2016 election to say, to mean that there was a basically a silent Trump vote that pollsters weren't catching, and so I'm just wondering again if there's a silent Republican pro-Trump vote here. That is not being reflected in a lot of the
0: mainstream polls. When I look at what's going on in the United States, as far as the economy is concerned, and ultimately, if elections usually focus on economic prosperity, the uh, unemployment rate is, uh, what, 3.3% for uh, white Americans, uh, 6.6% for African Americans, which is historically low, it's also low for all, very low for all other categories. So jobs are there, jobs are present, people are earning uh, a salary. We we know that the president uh, uh, Obama laughed at uh, Donald Trump in 2016, 15 or 16, when he uh, asked, "How are you going to bring these jobs back? How are you going to create jobs?" Well, Trump has done it, and now Obama is taking some of the credit. How much of the economic reality? How much of the economics is going to f- factor in, do you think, when the person's in the voting booth with the pencil or the pen and they're saying, I didn't have a job two years ago, I've got a job now, mm. Well,
5: unfortunately, as you know, there's a lot of emotion out there. In, in years past, the old economy stupid line would have said it all. With this kind of economy, the Republicans could have done no wrong. Uh, but we, what we see in poll after poll is that that a lot of Democrats, in particular, seem to be voting against their own self-interest. For one thing, Democrats still—the sizable majority of Democrats still credit Obama with the uh, improved economy, not Trump. Uh, and as I have said on your show before, uh, the, given the the uh, passions in the country right now, if Trump came out today and said he was going to give twenty-five thousand dollars tax-free to every American, eighty percent of Democrats would be opposed to it just because Trump proposed it. So. You know, I think a lot of the old rules, a lot of the old rules, were rewritten in the 2016 election, and I suspect uh, they will be. Some of them will be rewritten in this election, also.
0: So turnout, turnout is is going to tell a lot. Turnout's
5: everything. Turnout is is the factor. The Democrats have traditionally have turnout problems, but in off-year elections, I mean, for example, Clinton lost the control of the House two years into his presidency. Obama lost control of the House two years into his presidency. So. It is not an unusual thing traditionally for the party in power to lose, to lose seats in Congress uh, in the first midterm after, after a presidential win. But, as I said, you know, as, as your listeners well know, I mean, passions are running very high in this country. And after Kavanaugh, with the uh, illegal immigrant caravan coming, uh, Republicans are fired up to vote, too. So, so the big test is going to be, can the Democrats turn out bigger numbers than they normally turn
0: out? So when Democrats vote, they're going to vote anti-Trump. It's not going to be a case of uh, that with with, the, with Democrats controlling the House, it'll be uh, there'll be better legislation, there'll be better uh, approaches to dealing with people and with issues. It's going to be an anti-Trump vote. Well, we
5: asked folks. We asked folks about a week ago. What What's the biggest, most important issue that you're voting on? Roughly thirty some percent of both Republicans and Democrats, slightly fewer independents, said President Trump was the number one issue. So you can imagine for Republicans that's a positive, for Democrats that's a negative. Okay, the number two issue for, for everybody was the economy. It was very close. Okay, so Trump wasn't overwhelmingly the number even among Democrats. And because the economy was so high up, you've got to think that that certainly benefits, you would think normally that that would benefit Republicans. And I think certainly that will help them among independent voters. But how Democrats translate the word economy with Trump is uh, anybody's guess.
0: One last question, Fran. If if it were to happen that the Republicans were to hold on to the House, hold on to the Senate, they are going. They're definitely going to hold on to the White House, and the dynamic were unchanged. GOP controls all three branches of government. What happens then? Not only politically, but what happens? What happens to uh, to, uh, to American society? What What's the result? Well, I think, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, if they win the elections,
5: that's going to show the majority of Americans basically agree with the way things are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Trump Trump can definitely be over the top, uh, but he's doing a lot of, you know, he has a pretty remarkable record for two years into his presidency, uh, and he's got 51% approval, which is three three to four points ahead of where Obama was at this stage of his presidency.
0: So not impossible, but conventional thinking and looking at the first midterms of any president's tenure um the 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 odds would favor the democrats as far as the house is concerned uh, well i would say the, the odds
5: favor democratic pickups well, i still have my tough time wrapping my head around the democrats picking up 26 seats uh i mean they're obviously they are outspending the republicans by enormous amounts There's no doubt about that, and there's a lot of passion in it. But, you know, will their their voters turn out? Is that anti-Trump anger that was still there a year ago? I'm not so sure that it is.
0: We will know Tuesday night. Fran, thank you again for the time. My pleasure, Roy. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports. You can uh, sign on with them and get their, sometimes daily, uh, regularly, certainly, reports on how American voters feel and what is uh, driving the, the voters in the U.S.,